Welcome to the Empowering Midlife Wellness Podcast, where we talk about everything to do with midlife women's wellness and creating the best second half of life. I'm your host, Dr. Susan Hardwick-Smith. I'm a board-certified gynecologist, certified menopause practitioner and hormone replacement specialist, as well as an ICF-certified life and leadership coach and lots of other things. So if you want to check me out and learn about my private practice and other offerings, my website is www www.drsusan.com. That's D-R-S-U-S-A-N.com. It's my commitment to stay neutral by not accepting advertising dollars from sponsors. So all of these episodes are offered freely. And the best way that you can help this podcast is to share it with your friends, leave a positive review, and also keep in mind this is simultaneously posted in video format on YouTube, where you can find me by searching for Dr. Susan Hardwick-Smith. This week on Empowering Midlife Wellness, I'm talking about heart disease again because it is the number one killer of not just men, but also women. So maybe we need to spend a little bit more time thinking about that and some really simple testing that can help determine what your risk of heart disease is. And not only that, what you can do about it if you find out that you do have early signs of heart disease. And hopefully we can mitigate that all together. Hi friends, and welcome to this week's episode. We haven't talked about heart disease for a while. Maybe not a very sexy subject, but heart disease is the number one killer of both men and women. And an interesting fact is that we are 10 times more likely to die from heart disease than breast cancer. Not again to minimize breast cancer, that's a very important disease to be concerned about. But I do talk frequently about the fact that we probably are a little bit overemphasizing the importance of breast cancer and underemphasizing the importance of some other really important diseases that are frankly much more likely to kill us. So get your annual mammogram. If you get breast cancer, it will be caught early, more or less problem solved. And then let's move on to thinking about some other things that are a little bit more difficult to detect early and require some more forethought or earlier thinking in how to prevent these things from happening. Because the way women usually find out they have heart disease is by dropping dead from a heart attack. And we don't want that to happen. So traditional medicine, and I was trained in traditional medicine, really missed the boat quite a bit, and most cases continues to miss the boat when we're talking about what we can do to reduce our risk of dying from a heart attack. Because by the time things get so bad that we're having a heart attack, the disease has been there for ages. And if we could pick it up sooner and not get to that point in the first place, wouldn't that be great? And actually, we can. But it is really interesting that so little emphasis has been put on this, and it has been so vastly misunderstood by lots of people, including me, because that's how we were taught. So I am learning about this as we go from some of the smartest and most amazing, incredible lipid scientists in the world. And I spend a lot of time listening to what they have to say, because I realized that what I was taught in med school was just frankly wrong. And I'm fine with saying that I'm wrong because I love learning new things. So I'm going to just back up because I have realized by talking to patients that many people don't even know what we're talking about when we talk about heart disease or heart attack or things like that. So what we're talking about is that our heart, 
we all know it sits right here on the left side of our chest or kind of close to the middle actually, has a very important function, which is to pump blood around our body and keep us alive. So most of us know that much. But the blood vessels that actually supply the heart itself, those are called coronary arteries. So the arteries that actually supply blood to the heart are critical because if the heart itself cannot get good blood flow, then of course nothing works. So a heart attack is actually when one or more of those blood vessels becomes blocked and that can be an acute event where a plaque or a piece of junk, we'll talk about that in a moment, breaks off and actually completely blocks the artery and that causes sudden death. Or it could be something more subtle where there's just a blockage that's quite restrictive such that we have pain because the heart's not working as well. We have pain in the heart, pain down the left arm, typical symptoms that we know about with a heart attack. And by the way, not all women have those in quite the same way that men do, but typically chest pain, shortness of breath, ultimately loss of consciousness. Sometimes it can be subtle where we have what's called angina. Now angina is just pain in the heart off and on when those vessels are constricting but still allowing enough blood to flow through to keep the heart pumping. So it could range anywhere from just some pain in the heart that maybe you blow off and you just think it's maybe heartburn or maybe you're just getting a little overweight and you're a little more short of breath. And so women more than men tend to ignore those symptoms by the way. Or it could be something as severe as you are just in the middle of a sentence and just drop dead because a plaque you know, breaks off and boom, that's it. So anywhere in there. So the point being the arteries that supply our heart, the coronary arteries, are critical for survival of our body because our heart needs them to work. So the whole discussion about heart disease is talking about this process called athero sclerosis. So atherosclerosis is the long word for junk getting stuck in those vessels that can ultimately lead to stroke if they're in your neck. Uh, that would restrict blood flowing to your head, of course, or in your heart. Uh, so we don't want any of that, right? So you go to the doctor and you're getting a mammogram, you're getting a pap smear, maybe you're getting a colonoscopy now in your 40s, which was recommended. Now, only 1 in 25 of us are going to get colon cancer, but that doesn't mean it's not an important test to do. But up to 1 in 4 of us will die from heart disease, and why are we not spending more time talking about that? Well, let's flip that around and spend some time talking about that. So you go to the doctor, and they do some things like measure your blood pressure, they tell you not to smoke, those are great ideas because smoking and high blood pressure are two of the biggest risk factors for dying of a heart attack, up there with obesity and family history and some other nasty things that you might have inherited that we can detect in your bloodstream. But yes, yeah, so doctor tells you not to smoke, make sure your blood pressure is normal. Now I'm going to just take a little deviation here and say I have patients all the time I mean daily, who come into my office and their blood pressure is high. And by high, I mean anything over 130 on the top and 80 on the bottom. You know, you get those two numbers. We want it to be under 130 over 80, ideally. 140 over 90 is too high. So a patient comes in, we check her blood pressure. Let's just say it's 155 over 92. And she's like, oh, it's just always like that when I come to the doctor. Or it's just been a really stressful year, so it's just been high. Another way of saying it is blowing it off. And you know what? It doesn't really matter what the reason is. 
that your blood pressure is high. Maybe it is compounded by stress. Maybe it is compounded by driving into a new doctor's office. Maybe it's compounded by a lot of things. Your blood vessels don't really care what the reason is. What happens when your blood pressure is high? It's just like if you're blowing high pressure fluid through any type of pipe, it's going to damage the inside of the pipe. And so I think we need to move away from this kind of, oh, well, it's just a little high blood pressure because I'm stressed or what have you. Doesn't matter why. The point is if your blood pressure is high, for whatever reason at all, that needs to be corrected pronto. <laughs> because that will damage your blood vessels and damaged blood vessels stop serving out organs and that leads to all kinds of problems. So please do not ignore it if your blood pressure is high. That needs to be corrected. Now that can be corrected with lifestyle changes like exercise, weight loss. But in the meantime, because those things take time, blood pressure medications. And I'm not a huge fan of medications unless they are necessary. So please don't just blow that off. If I have a patient with that particular picture, I'll say, okay, well, that's fine, and I'll explain what I just explained. Go home for a week, take your blood pressure at home, let's look at that log, and if it's really high, it's high, and we need to do something about it, and we don't want to wait six or 12 months while your nutrition and exercise is taking care of it. We wanna fix it today. Okay, blood pressure, and then of course, stopping smoking. That's a no-brainer, just do that. Now, you can do all those things. You might be normal weight, you might have normal blood pressure, and then we do traditional blood work, right? You go to your primary care doctor or you come to see me, and typically we would do what's called a basic lipid panel, and that would include things like your total cholesterol, your HDL, that's the high-density lipoprotein, commonly called good cholesterol, and we're going to talk about that a little bit because it's not quite that simple. LDL or low density lipoprotein, also known as bad cholesterol, also quite not quite that simple. And then triglycerides. And so that would be in a typical lipid panel, total cholesterol, HDL, LDL, triglycerides. And then typically we measure the ratio between the total cholesterol and the HDL we want that to be less than 3.5. And that's a very basic picture. Now, all that could be perfectly normal, and that is not enough. So I wanna to talk to you about why that's not enough, because that is really just skimming the surface of what is going on. Now, if you are perfect weight, meaning your body fat percent is under 30% of your total weight if you're a woman, or under 20% of your total weight if you're a man, you exercise, you don't smoke, you have no family history of anyone having a heart attack at an unusual age like under 75. Your lipid panel is perfect, the basic panel that I mentioned. Maybe that's all we need to do. However, if any other situation applies, like if your lipid panel's just a little high, your LDL says 120, and your HDL's a little low, like maybe it's 40. Maybe your total cholesterol is a little high, like 220, and you have a little bit of high blood pressure and just a little bit more fat, and maybe one or two people had a heart attack. I mean, you're seeing all these small things that individually we can think are not a big deal, but they add up to a significantly elevated risk of dying from a heart attack. And so if one could prevent that, wouldn't that be great? So there are some things that we can do that are much more useful 
than just this basic lipid panel. So let's look into that. So if I have a patient who has anything other than just the most perfect squeaky clean history combined with body weight, perfect blood pressure, perfect basic lipid panel, yes, maybe we can stop there. Not many people fall into that category. So what are some other tests you can do? There is some additional blood work that is actually much more interesting and it's affordable. And I would just suggest everybody does it. Any lab can do this. Now, if you used, uh, say, Quest, for example, which is one of the bigger labs in this country, they have a beautiful advanced cardiac panel. They call the Cardiac IQ panel. Uh, now, in our office, we use a different lab, and we order these labs individually, but wherever you go, you can get these done. And I'll tell you what they are. They've got lots of funny little letters just to make everything kind of not make sense because they all start blending together. But we already talked about HDL, which is high-density lipoprotein, and LDL, low-density lipoprotein. And that's part of the picture, but what is more important are these additional little parts of that protein structure that's floating around your bloodstream. And there's a particular nasty little thing called ApoB, and I'll write that down because it's lots of letters, little A-P-O, big B. So ApoB is what wraps around the LDL molecule and carries it around your system. And long story short, it's actually the ApoB that is the bad actor, not the LDL itself. And you know, maybe that doesn't matter and maybe it does, but actually it does because you could have you know, slightly elevated LDL and a really low ApoB and your risk would be much lower than if it was the other way around. Now, HDL is associated with a different little guy called ApoA. And ApoA is friendly and helpful and all of those good things. And so it's not the HDL itself, but it's the ApoA. And it's not the LDL itself, but it's this nasty ApoB that causes the problem. Because, you know, we're floating cholesterol around our system because, of course, it is vital to have cholesterol in our system. It's a vital part of our cell walls. It's a vital part of our neurologic system. And so, you know, we're transporting this around our body for appropriate use. So we need cholesterol in our system, absolutely. But we don't need very much. And what happens with these particular nasties, like the ApoB associated with the LDL, <laughs> I know it's just a soup of letters, is that they tend to get stuck in the endothelium, which is also known as the lining of our blood vessels, particularly if that lining has been damaged by high blood pressure or by smoking. They get stuck. And so they get stuck, they build up, they form plaques, which are basically what it sounds like, just lumps of goop. And then what happens over time is our body tries to protect us from these lumpy bits of goop and covers them up with calcium. So now you've got lumpy goop in the vessels of your heart or your neck or wherever they land. Underneath is what's called a soft plaque, which is just basically fat, uh, LDL cholesterol fat, and then it gets covered with calcium. And those plaques have been there for a long time before the calcium shows up. But calcium is cool because it shows up on an x-ray. It glows. It's shiny. So a really interesting test to do 
arguably more important than a colonoscopy or even a mammogram, dare I say, but I would do all of them. But if God said you could only pick one, maybe the most important one is a calcium heart test. So an x-ray of your heart, we want to show that you have no calcium in your coronary arteries. A calcium score of zero is what we want. We don't want a calcium score of three or four and go, oh, well, that's just fine. That's not a very high number. We want it to be zero because remember calcium of any amount whatsoever, it means there's been active plaque buildup going on for quite some time. So anything other than a calcium score of zero indicates that there's some stuff in your heart and it's been there for a while. So you can get a heart scan anywhere, um, at least in Houston, it's super easy to do. Um, I'm going to put a note of where I had mine done, and I'll show you what the result looks like. It's really, really cool and super easy. So I went to a place called Advanced Body Scan. Uh, they have them in different parts of the country or similar operations, I'm sure. Uh, there's one in Houston. You go online, you make an appointment, you don't need a doctor's order, it costs something less than $300. It is a CAT scan, which is an x-ray. So CAT scan, you may know, is just x-rays cut in little slices. So it's multiple little shots of x-ray, but minimal radiation. The whole thing took three minutes. Didn't require an IV. I didn't have to get undressed. There's no uh, enclosed space that could make you feel claustrophobic. So you lay on this little table. Boom, boom, boom. A few x-ray shots. It's done. And then the result is sent to you within... A week or less than with that, depending on the timing. I think I got mine back in about uh, five business days. And so I had a calcium score of zero. I'm very happy to report. It also looks a little bit more detail at the inside of the coronary arteries and can give you an indication of what your arteries look like compared to other people your age. So I'm 56, and I'm very proud to say that I have a coronary artery age of someone in their 30s. So that's very exciting information. So, good for me, that's great. What if it was different? What if you had it done and you had a calcium score of 100 and a coronary artery age of someone 20 years older than you? Well, then you can intervene before you have a heart attack. We can send you to the cardiologist. You can have stents put in your heart or whatever is necessary in order to prevent a heart attack. So, a coronary artery scan uh, looking for calcification, which is a later sign, as I mentioned, looking at the general health of your arteries, is a really good idea. It's inexpensive. It doesn't hurt. Uh, most hospitals will do it if you call them up. Now, I just recommend everybody doing that. I think if we're recommending mammograms at 40, colonoscopies at 45, we should be doing this in every patient who's around 40, not waiting for them to get sick. So please go and get that done. Now, the only person I would say, yeah, maybe you don't have to, would be if everything is perfect. Family history is perfect, blood pressure is perfect, you don't smoke, your weight's great, you exercise, all of those things. Hey, I have all those things. I did it anyway because you never know. I mean, we've all heard of those people who just look perfectly healthy, right? Maybe an athlete, they're out there doing their thing and they drop dead. And as it turns out, the inside of their heart was full of junk that nobody knew about. And had they had this done, they would not have had a heart attack. So it is literally able to prevent something before there are any signs or symptoms, which is pretty dang amazing. So heart scan's great. And then you can check for these other more detailed elements of the lipid profile quite inexpensively. And I'll tell you which ones you should check for. Of course, we talked about that ApoB guy, which is a bad actor, and we want ApoB to be 
as low as possible. Now it does track along with LDL, so chances are if you've got a high LDL, you probably have a high ApoB, but it's the ApoB itself that really is the target, so let's measure that. Now if by some chance your LDL is a little high and your ApoB is super low, we don't need to worry about it so much. So I mean it really does make a big difference to how you might manage things. Now ApoB could change. That's something that you would measure regularly just like your other elements of your lipid panel. But there are some other things that are inherited. You either have them or you don't. One of them is another gobbledygook of letters, capital A-P-O-E, A-P-O-E. So there is a genetic test for A-P-O-E. Any lab can do it. It's not expensive. It will tell you if you have uh, a type of genetic predisposition that increases your risk of heart disease, decreases it, or is somewhere in the middle. So I did mine, and mine was one that was kind of in the middle. It did not increase my risk, it didn't decrease it, and that's a pretty good one to have. That also is associated with Alzheimer's risk, so it's really interesting to find out your APOE status, which type of APOE you have, because there are things, of course, that we can do to take action if you were to find out that you had a very high risk type of APOE, then you would really up your game in taking care of your health. It would be very motivating to do everything possible to reduce your risk of heart disease and Alzheimer's. So these are actionable items. And the other one that is just a one-time thing to measure, because it's genetic, you have it or you don't, another gobbledygook of letters, and that is LP little a. LP little a, another bad guy, we don't want to have that, but if you happen to have it, again, it elevates your risk. So you may be someone with a lipid panel that looks pretty unremarkable. You know, maybe your LDL is 120 and not, nobody's making a big deal about that. But if you have LP little a, totally different story. That elevates your risk. And if you've got other risk factors, you know, on and on and up it goes. So there's a very important, in my opinion, to measure those things so that we can truly establish your risk. Because what we've been doing traditionally is just saying, oh, your basic lipid panel looks fine, your good cholesterol's good, your bad cholesterol's good. <laughs> it's not so much that they're good and bad. It's not quite that simple. In fact, the role of HDL, the one that we've always called good cholesterol, isn't very well understood. I mean, people have tried taking drugs that elevate it. It doesn't seem to make a difference as far as heart disease risk. It's certainly true that HDL is associated with that APOA guy that is helpful because it can actually get in and out of your blood vessels without getting stuck. So not to say that HDL is not important, but it's not as clear as that one's good and this one's bad, and it's much more complex than that. Another thing that's super interesting that, frankly, I'll just say I was wrong about because this is how we were taught, is the importance of food as far as how much that affects your cholesterol and, more importantly, your risk of heart disease. And it turns out that food doesn't make that much difference. And as a vegetarian, I have to kind of ugh, eat my words when I say that. But yes, if you're eating tons of saturated fat... So you're on a keto diet, you're eating bacon, lard, lots of cheese, whipped cream, egg yolks, fatty salmon, chicken with the skin on it, et cetera, et cetera, lots of saturated animal fats. Uh, that is going to elevate your unhealthy lipids in most cases. 
but we know there are people who eat that stuff and they have a healthy lipid panel. And we also know there are vegans who eat none of that stuff and have a very unhealthy lipid panel. So it actually has much more to do with genetics and the way we synthesize cholesterol in our body, in our liver and in other cells in our body than what we eat. Which is not to say that we don't wanna eat those things, mostly because they make us gain weight and being obese contributes to heart disease. So it's not as simple as we thought, but what I wanna suggest is that when you go to the doctor for your annual fasting lab work, which please do that, by the way, if you don't do that already, there are some labs that I would ask for. They're not expensive. Your doctor may not offer them to you. So yes, the standard lipid panel, which again I mentioned is total cholesterol, HDL, triglycerides, LDL ratio between the cholesterol and the HDL. That's great. Do all of that. Then as for, could I please add on these tests I'll put below. ApoB, we want that as low as possible. LP little a, we don't want to have it. But if we do, we need to know so we can deal with it. And then APOE, the APOE gene. Those last two you only need to measure once. And then a couple of other things that can be helpful is something called C-reactive protein. So many letters. We actually call it now high-sensitivity CRP. Just add two more letters, HSCRP. It's not a perfect test by any means, but if that is high, that can indicate that you've got some in increased inflammation in your heart. So it's another useful piece of the picture. It by itself, not particularly meaningful. So HSCRP, homocysteine. So homocysteine is a protein that is elevated in many cases, uh, and we're going to talk about this in another video because way too much to talk about today, but it's very acutely involved in B vitamin metabolism. There's a very common genetic mutation that I have and probably 10% of us have called MTHFR. Way more letters than we want to get into today, but those of us who have the MTHFR mutation, as a long story, often end up having elevated homocysteine. And homocysteine is associated with an increased risk of heart disease and stroke. So we check that. If that's low, we want it less than 10. That's a good thing. If it's high, again, it's another risk factor to put on the list. And that one is very, very easy to treat simply by taking methylated B vitamins. So I'm actually going to make another video about that topic in particular because the whole MTHFR, B, vitamin, methylated folate conversation <laughs> is a lot to talk about. And since I have that myself, um, you know, I know a bit about it and it's uh, something that many of you have and many of you don't know because it's not always checked. So homocysteine and then good old insulin because insulin resistance, which we've talked about lots of times before, that means when our body starts becoming desensitized to insulin, which is, as you recall, the hormone that our pancreas makes in order to allow sugar to get into our cells. So we need it to live. As we know, if you're a type one diabetic and you're born without the ability to make insulin, you have to give yourself injections multiple times a day because without insulin, you can't get glucose into your cells, blood sugar goes up, you're not able to create energy, fall into a coma. So let's just say we need it. But type 2 diabetes is kind of an opposite sort of a situation where we start making too much insulin 
Our, pan our pancreas is cranking out insulin all the time. Now that's a fat storing hormone because remember its job is to suck glucose into our cells. And when we've got too much glucose that we can't use at all, what do we do? We turn it into fat. The ironic thing is the fatter we are, the more insulin we make and on it goes. And so having a low fasting insulin is really good. And by low, I mean less than five, low, less than 10 at the least, but less than five would be great. Because when we're fasting, your pancreas doesn't really need to be producing any insulin much at all. Uh, it doesn't have much to do. So we want fasting insulin to be very low. So when insulin is elevated when we're fasting, that is either an indication that you have diabetes or it's a pre-diabetic condition. So we frequently pick up someone who has absolutely normal blood sugar, passes every other diabetes test, but they have elevated insulin or insulin resistance. And that is highly associated not only with weight gain, but independently with heart disease. So if you get your labs done, have those things checked because all of them are actionable and we can act on things and fix the problem before it happens. So I think if traditional medicine, which we're not talking about here today, this is not traditional medicine, this is wellness medicine, but in traditional medicine, it felt to me like we were taught to watch two cars that were about to crash and just watch them crash and then we would go pick up the pieces. And as traditional doctors, we were very good at picking up the pieces after a car crash. Wellness medicine would instead radio one or both of those drivers and tell them to turn around so that you avoid the crash. <laughs> it's just a different way of thinking. I'm going to repeat a story that uh, Peter Atia, who many of you know, he's a fantastic podcaster, probably one of the most intelligent human beings living on the planet, who is a longevity scientist, having also graduated out of traditional medicine through frustration. But in the recent book that he wrote called Outlive, uh, I'll put a link to that because I highly recommend reading this book. It's just quite entertaining and very, very educational. He recalled having nightmares when he was a traditional physician about running around trying to catch raw eggs falling out of the sky. And I resonate with this feeling as an obstetrician that I would have nightmares about not being able to get to the baby, you know, mountains and rocks and all these things in my path. So similar terrifying vision that doctors have at night. So he's trying to catch raw eggs flying out of the sky, and he's catching as many as he can, but some are falling on the ground. And it just feels like a very hopeless, daunting, anxiety-provoking way to practice. And it's straight up reactive. It's reacting to problems when they're already happening. You've got eggs flying out of the sky. And he recalls a moment when he thought, what if we went up there and told the guy to stop throwing the eggs? <laughs> Which I think is such a beautiful metaphor, similar to let's just not have those cars crash. And so all of this wellness medicine is trying to prevent the eggs from flying out of the sky, prevent the car crash. So we're getting back to the root cause and trying to detect problems before they happen. I mean, how many times have you heard this or something like it at your doctor's office? And I must say, I probably said similar things. You look fine right now. You're not sick. You don't really need to go to the doctor. Why don't you just come back when you're sick? I'm so sorry if I ever told anyone that. <laughs> 
probably the mentality that has led this country to have the worst healthcare record in the Western world. How about we stop people getting sick instead of telling them to come back when they're sicker? So that's my little thoughts for the day about cardiac disease. I'm going to make a list of those tests that I think you need to ask for. Everybody over 40, go get a calcium heart scan unless you have just the most clean bill of health in the universe, and even then get one, because I could say that I have that, and I was very excited to see my results. I'm going to share them with you, and uh, I would repeat it in my case in about five years. Now, if you have any abnormality on that scan, you'd want to do it annually while you're being treated, and that could be in various ways, and you all know that I would love to lower cholesterol without medications, but Statins have a place. I mean, statins, which are the traditional lipid-lowering medications, are what you would need if you have those scary things. If you've got a high ApoB, if you've got that LP little a, if you have the ApoE gene, that is the scary kind, and you've got elevated lipids, take a statin. I know there are ways to manage cholesterol without statins. I've talked about that before, and those are great unless you are in a high-risk group, and then sometimes we need to take medications because the plan that we're trying to set up here is to have a really long health span. That means to be healthy, have great quality of life for a really long time, and then die quite quickly rather than having a 20-year slow decline towards death, which is the way things go most of the time in this country because we're really crummy at preventative medicine. And let's just say, so let's get better at advocating for ourselves about prevention instead of going to the doctor when you've already got crap in your heart or, God forbid, had a heart attack. Let's back up and find those signs really, really early or not have any signs at all because we've done the appropriate testing, found our risk status, and then acted on it appropriately. So lots of letters to throw into your list of things to know, but if you listen to what I just said, you know more than most doctors, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe and share it with your friends, and I look forward to seeing you next week. <laughs>